Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Deborah Vance on July 19, 2021. Deborah has a Ph.D. in intercultural communication from Howard University. She's an artist and a freelance writer. Her many varied occupations include photography, copy editing, translating, designing gardens, working on radio documentaries and a kids' educational TV series, and coaching college students and adults with emotional and mental illnesses. She's written her first novel, Sylvie Denied. We talk about her debut novel, and she reads a couple of excerpts in the interview. I started the interview by asking Deborah where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. So I grew up in Wilmette, Illinois, from the time I was two. So I was born in Evanston, which is right near there. My mother joined a congregational church in Wilmette when my dad was out of town. And I didn't know this till I was older. I always wondered why he never went to church. But my mother said later it was because she joined when he didn't have any input. But I was a regular Sunday school attendee. And I actually had a positive experience. I mean, I really loved going to Sunday school, which, you know, I hardly know anybody who will say that. But the church congregational back then was, how do you say, independent. Now it is part of United Church of Christ, and they have their own I don't know if you'd call it catechism, but they have their own belief system that we didn't have. And it was all about the minister. First of all, we didn't have any real rituals. There was no baptism. When you joined the church, they called it christening, but it was your choice when you were a teenager. We didn't have original sin. I never learned about that, didn't know anything about it. Confession, you know, that was Protestants. There was none of that anyway, but we didn't have the Trinity either. So it was just God. It wasn't God the Son and the Holy Ghost, or whatever that meant. We didn't learn about that. I kind of learned that Jesus was a teacher, but not that Jesus was God. I never learned that. I feel like I wasn't indoctrinated with beliefs that I later would have rejected. In Sunday school, we memorized Bible passages. I got, you know, ribbons for memory, and I, I really loved reading the old, you know, the stories and memorizing stuff, sang in the choir. And then... In the 60s, so I was a teenager during the the late 60s, I had a minister who, in Wilmette, this is a white church, he had marched on Selma with Martin Luther King, and he decided he needed to integrate the church. And he started inviting black people to join, and a couple families, apparently not that many. But I did see black people in the church, and then I heard that, or I noticed that other people weren't showing up. In fact, at one point, they had lost confidence in him, and they wanted to kick him out. I really liked him because in junior high, he had taken us to visit all the other religions in the area, including the Baha'i House of Worship. You know, I grew up in that town, and pretty much nobody knew anything about the Baha'i faith because the Baha'i House of Worship, we knew, was meant for humanity. It's like you could go in there, but there were no services. Now they have some readings now and then. I don't think there was even a choir. I never heard a choir, never heard of a choir. If you went there, there was really, there weren't any guides. So we never met 
a living Baha'i. But anyway, we went and I read all the inscriptions and I thought, you know, it looked pretty cool. We went to Catholic into a sanctuary. I'd never seen a crucifix before and I was kind of frightened by it. <laughs> we even went to a Mormon church. It wasn't a temple. It was a church so we could go in there. Synagogue, everything. So, you know, this guy was very open-minded. He was ecumenical and he also sponsored a program where we went the kids, the high school kids as in high school, I went to Puerto Rico. We raised money, you know, with fundraisers and stuff. It was like $50 a ticket, you know, a flight to Puerto Rico. And we were there for a week working with a group of local kids who were all, you know, dark skin. And I, you know, formed relationships with them. I mean, I really enjoyed it, you know, made friends. The end of that week is the day Martin Luther King was assassinated. And we had a big discussion about the significance of that. And I was aware of King because I knew our minister had gone. Um, and we were with the assistant minister at this point in Puerto Rico. It was very disturbing. You know, just this whole idea that, you know, the whole murder was pretty, it was pretty shocking. When I got back to school, I was a junior in high school then. I had been involved in a group of social services where we were going into the poor areas and tutoring kids who were mostly black kids. And our social services group decided to form a group with our parents and our teachers that we called People to Overcome White Racism. So we're doing that. So anyway, so all of this is happening, all this political stuff's going on. And my minister that I really like is being kicked out of the church. So I quit the church and I became very involved in politics. So I decided I was an atheist. So that's pretty much my, up until that point, my, my religious experience. So then, Deborah, describe for us your spiritual journey that took you from becoming an atheist to uh, <laughs> becoming a Baha'i. I threw myself into things. So, you know, we're doing marches, we're putting on lecture series, organizing. You know, this is still in high school. We convinced our, we convinced, I, I don't know if you ever did it, but we convinced the history teacher to include black history in the history curriculum and marching against the war in Vietnam also. I was marching against the war in Vietnam, and that was the same year. I mean, that was the same summer that the Democratic uh, National Convention was happening in Chicago. I wasn't at that, but I knew people who were. And so I was becoming really involved in politics, thinking that people of goodwill weren't in control, like they weren't stepping up. So I threw myself into this. And then, you know, the following year, well, when I went away to college, I was still involved in more. I mean, it was the marches on Washington, D.C. against the war, which were pretty big. You know, it's a kind of tear gassing experience. So I was really, you know, I was going to all kinds of teach-ins and be-ins, they called them, learning more about, you know, the causes of the Vietnam War and how racist it was and all this. And then Kent State happened. At the end of my freshman year, um, the students at Kent State were killed, and school was shut down. We could stay on campus for a few weeks because it was early in the semester. I think that our exams were mostly like, what should we do about Vietnam? Those were the exams. Mm. So everybody passed because you could say anything. And I hung around, and I went to a meeting over in Cambridge, and these people were saying things like, you have to really detach yourself. And I thought, well, that makes sense. You know, being, de being detached is a good thing. 
And so you have to be so detached that you're willing to kill your family. <laughs> I thought, wait a second, oh. what? I heard that. And the more moderate people were doing things like, okay, we're going to put on this event. You women cook lunch for us guys. You know, so I'm seeing all of this, again, hypocrisy. So I left, came back to Wilmette pretty disgusted. Now I'm disgusted with church. I'm disgusted with politics. I thought, well, everybody, it seems like everybody's a hypocrite. Like, we're the people who actually are doing what they say they believe, you know, who are living their beliefs. So I got a job downtown finding all these, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these or heard of these things, but the I am movement or the Harry Krishnas. I mean, I'd, I'd see these groups through the loop. I'd, I'd walk around on my lunch hour and just run into these off-the-wall minority religious groups that just seem a little bit off, you know, like a little bit of reality, like through a funny mirror or something. But I was exploring, you know, what are they thinking? I was taking a walk. You know, I went to the house of worship again. I read the inscriptions. And another day I was walking along, and I'm thinking, there's a Bible passage about, you know, the God recognizes the bird that falls, you know, and I thought, well, obviously, you know, birds have everything they need. Animals have everything they need. Why don't human beings? I mean, wouldn't God, if God, you know, if there's a God, wouldn't God provide for human beings the same as God's provided for animals and, you know, gives them homes and, you know, they know what to do with their lives? So I'm thinking that way. So I said, okay, obviously I, I must believe in God. I guess I do. You know, there's got to be a God. So I'm thinking that way. Okay, so then what happened was that year in June was a, a youth conference. The high youth conference is happening in Wilmette. First of all, as I said, I'd never even seen a Baha'i, except for an old woman. Once when I went into the bookstore down the, in Foundation Hall, now here's young Baha'is. My brother had heard of the faith, and he said, hey, there's this concert that's going on. It's going to be at Gilson Park, but it was going to rain, so they moved it to a school. So, you know, I got a ride up to the school. I thought, well, this will be interesting. You know, Baha'i kids, wow, you know, that's weird. I go in there, and it's crowded. It's packed with young people. I guess most of them are Baha'is from all over the country. I sit down, and I look up on stage, and I see this friend of my mother's who was in League of Women Voters with my mom, and this guy I knew from high school, he's older than me, and he used to have these big beer parties that when I was in eighth grade, I, you know, we would go into his house, in, into these beer parties. His parents were out of town. I mean, these were wild parties where they were drinking so much beer, they were building a wall of empty beer cans between the living room and the dining room. And, you know, yes, we were not supposed to be drinking, but we were. And he and this woman are up there holding hands. I thought, well, that is wild. That's crazy to see these two such different people. Cause I knew what a you know, wild guy this was and you know, how kind of staid and conservative and quiet my mom's friend is. There was a spirit, I think it was pretty palpable, but it was even stronger in this room. And somebody passed me a card that had all the Baha'i principles on it. And as I said, I'd read the inscriptions these beautiful passages, and I'm reading them again on this card, and I thought, I believe all of that, I'm a Baha'i. So I signed a card, I enrolled. So Deborah, 
Reading your bio on your website, it appears that writing was an interest of yours early on in your life. What do you think inspired you to write as a young person? My mother was a frustrated short story writer, <laughs> and I think that's it. I mean, she didn't talk much about it, but she did have books about writing on the shelf that I borrowed, and she would read to us. She would read short stories to us all the time, and she had to leave college because her dad, her, her father, who'd lost all his money in the Depression, was still trying to build up his business, and she gave him the money she'd save from working to put herself through college so she could get a degree so she could be a writer of some kind. I think that's pretty much it. Plus, my family is full of storytellers. My uncle published some in the Atlantic magazine, um, I think in Harper's as well. And then he became a very well-known poet in the Chicago area. He was a businessman, but there was an article about him in the Atlantic about businessman poet, you know, like that was a big deal. He just said his stories got shorter and shorter until they became poems. And, you know, my grandfather also was a storyteller, my dad. It was just, there was just a lot of storytelling going on. And I got a lot of encouragement for writing for my teachers. And I noticed too, Deborah, that you are an artist. Did that also bloom in your growing up years? It did. It, that's a, kind of a strange story because it's so way of thinking that doesn't exist now. But I had a lot of rendering ability. So I could, in fact, when I was in fourth grade, my, my grandfather worked at the Chicago Board of Trade and his, his grain that he traded the most was oats. He offered me $10, which was a lot of money then for a kid in fourth grade, to draw a picture of a running horse, a black horse, which I did. And he used that in his advertising. It's actually not bad for, <laughs> for however, a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. When I was in fifth grade, my mom signed me up for these summer painting classes, watercolor. Oh, plus she and her best friend had worked on a magazine in New York City the friend was an artist my mom wrote for this magazine, and she gave me watercolor. She was doing a surprise present for my mom. She was doing a portrait of our house, and I watched her paint, and she gave me tubes of watercolors as opposed to those little you know, box things and a place to mix them and some papers, so she coached me in that. So in fifth grade, I took lessons from a teacher, a local guy, in the summer, at the same time, I'm taking piano lessons because my grandmother was a singer and she paid for my piano lessons. The art teacher knew I'm taking piano lessons, and this is the weird part of it. He tells my mom, well, she's got to decide which of these she wants to do, either piano or art. She can't do both. You would never hear anybody say that now, right? <laughs> I mean, right. It's just weird. And I thought, well, I love them both. I'm going to keep doing them both, but... If I quit piano lessons, my grandmother's feelings will be hurt, so I quit <laughs> art lessons. Now, Deborah, you have published Sylvie Denied, which you describe as a semi-autobiographical debut novel. Now, what inspired you to write Sylvie Denied? It was just after my freshman year. When I became a Baha'i, here I'm in Wilmette, I started working at the Baha'i National Center. At the time, I had planned to transfer from Boston where I was going to college because I didn't think I was getting a very good education there. I thought I was going to go to one place that fell through. Well, I decided I didn't want to go there. 
I'll explain what that was. Friends World College, it does still exist. It has a new name. It had campuses on every continent. You would travel from one continent to the other, and it would have teachers you could choose from. Like, you pick your own teacher, and you choose your own curriculum. And I thought, well, here's the thing. I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't want to write about writing. I didn't want to go to a writing school and write about writing. I wanted to have experiences that, you know, live a life and have something to say. And I thought, well, if I'm traveling, definitely I'll have something to say. So I was going to do that. At that point, this is 1970, there was a plan for Baha'is to help around the world to build up local spiritual assemblies in different countries. And I thought, well, I could go to another country. I'm good at languages. I'll speak French. I'll go to a country where I speak French. I'll go to school there. So I looked into that. Back then, we're looking in libraries and, and books and stuff, sending letters, waiting for answers. You know, it took forever. And realized that going to France would be difficult because you needed permission ahead of time. But going to Italy, there was no red tape, really. You just went there. And in Italy, there was a school for translators and interpreters. And I thought, okay, I'll go to that school. So I, I will go and help the Baha'is raise up a local assembly in one of the towns that they're trying to do it, and then go to the school. So that was my plan. And I left the following January to go do that. And I was thinking this, even during that political phase, there's an, a person inside that's the real me, and then there's the social person. I recognize this dichotomy. I have a conscience. When I asked my mom what's a conscience, she says, well, that's a voice inside telling you. I thought, well, gosh, what is that voice? You know, What is that inside that's talking to me? That's me talking to myself. So who's the self that my inner self is talking to? When I went to another country, that whole feeling of I have my social self and my inner self became very apparent because suddenly I'm in a place where the language is different, the culture is different, the rules are different. And I can see pretty starkly who's the real me and who's the social me. Not only that, that, that also happened when I became a Baha'i. So in that moment when I converted, because it was a pretty intense experience for me, that sort of aha moment, it was like a flip. It was sort of like a switch turned. I realized that the person that I was identifying as all my life, wild, a little bit unruly, but smart, whatever, you know, I never really got in trouble. I was smart enough not to get in real trouble, but still I would take all these risks. You know, that was the, the sort of pushing the envelope kind of thing. The book takes that idea. It's the journey of this young woman who is questioning what's going on in the world and kind of coming to the conclusion that really nobody knows what's going on in the world. She's got to figure it out. And she's got to figure out also who she is in this world. Like, who is she really? And I call that a spiritual journey because I think that's what it is. I think that we live in a world where we're really alienated from our true self. We're encouraged more and more to be alienated from who we actually are and who we know we are, but we're afraid to be. 
And I certainly was in a lot of situations where I was tested. My thinking was tested. Nobody's challenging me. I'm being challenged yet. And is Sylvie the protagonist? Yeah. And to what age does the semi-autobiography take the reader to? About 30. I just signed up on this website. It just went live on Monday. Best books about leaving home, travel, and self-discovery. I talk about my book, and then I picked five other books and reviewed them. Leaving home is a theme about finding yourself, usually. What parts of the novel would you say are autobiographical versus fictional? Not all the places in the book are ones that I went to. Several of them are. Characters are composites. Events are pretty true. I could call it historical fiction. There's one anachronism in the sense that something that was happening just ended before I got to that place. So I wasn't actually, and the people I knew weren't actually involved. But yet, what happened was true. Some of the situations, like I did operate a rooming house in Burlington, Vermont. I did pick apples with migrant pickers in Cornwall, and there was racial violence there. I did marry an Italian. There's only one child in the book, but I did have two children. actually had three at that time, there's two, but I only talk about one. There's only one sibling in the book, and I have three siblings. I made characters up. I made composites. I made up some motivations for things, like why did this happen? Why did that happen? But pretty much the internal story, most of it is things that I did experience. There's an episode of abuse when Sylvie's a young, a young girl, from a stranger. And I use that as what motivates her to think and what motivated me to think that people didn't know what's really going on. Like the adults are clueless. The adults don't really know what I know. It was a little therapeutic in a way because I'm figuring this out as I'm writing the book. So the story and my thinking about my life developed as I worked on it. But at the same time, I have to say, I've written short stories. I'd written and submitted short stories for the past 20 or so years that, you know, I got nice rejections and I took those as rejections. And I later actually met the editor of Story Magazine. I said, oh, you know, I got a nice rejection from Story Magazine. She said, did you resubmit? I said, no, probably not. She said, well, that's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) You're (laughs) supposed to resubmit, try again. And I never did. I saved all of those. And Each of those stories had a different protagonist. Sometimes they were men, sometimes they were women. Different outcomes. You know, I really worked to make one long storyline. So I see in that sense, it really was wrought from scratch. And I superimposed my story onto fiction. My family just think it's all fact. They're talking, well, why don't you do this? You know, it's like, <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> it wasn't you. And I guess my sister's just grateful she's not in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Deb, what do you want 
readers to come away with after reading Sylvie Denied? I think really the most important point in the book is to think for yourself. There's a strong human consciousness, collective consciousness. Now the thing is, besides my life and besides the book, this is also my professional area of study. My doctorate is in intercultural communication, and it's largely about this very topic. It's largely about the dominant culture influencing thought and influencing values, and people buy into that as that's reality, that that's truth. My early foray into politics showed me how that dominant reality or that dominant truth was affecting everything. It was affecting church. It was affecting politics. It's affecting what people think is true and right and real. And this is why religion is, was such a great fit for me, especially then, is because it gives you the tools to meditate and to look inside and to acquire attributes, to work on yourself spiritually investigate the truth on your own. That's embedded in, in the book. It's written in third person, but it's written inside Sylvie's head. It's her thought process. There's flashbacks to when she's young, so you're seeing how she's thinking as a young person, as a teenager, and as a mother. You're seeing her thought process through it all, and, and it's this constant figuring things out and trying to figure people out and figure the world out. I would encourage people to do the same thing. And many do. I don't know if everybody does. Some of the other themes in there are women's issues, race is in there, definitely family issues, relationships, and motherhood. I think there's a, probably the strongest theme besides becoming self-aware is what is it to be a woman? Because woman in my life has not really been defined in a lot of ways. Deb, would you like to read an excerpt from Sylvie Denied? All right, I'll do this one. One Saturday, she walked to Gilson Park and lay on the sandy beach, inhaling the sweet lake air, watching clouds drift. As the gull soared overhead, she mused that if everything had been given to that measly bird to make it happy, then why not to people? She'd encountered all those groups downtown seeking such contentment. On her way home from the train on Monday, she approached Gilson from another direction, riding her bike down Linden. A block from Gilson, she stopped at the Baha'i Temple and its gardens. She circled around the building, reading inscriptions above the doors, and was struck by, the source of all learning is the knowledge of God. Though she'd learned to be kind and to give back to the community, she'd never specifically connected learning with spirituality. Entering the sanctuary, she found more inscriptions in the alcoves. Sunlight streamed through the high filigreed ceiling as she strolled, the sole visitor in the stillness. She came to the quote, all the prophets of God proclaim the same face and felt an aha of recognition. She'd always believed this. She sat in the middle of the row of seats in the sanctuary, closing her eyes to ponder. 
She felt like her body held two selves wandering through two parallel worlds. One had been asleep and the other half awake, one obvious and the other hidden. She followed the stairs down to the foundation hall to find someone to talk to. Despite the temple's prominence, she'd never met a Baha'i and left with books and a phone number. She walked along reading about the soul as a mirror and felt her heart swell. The tenets of this faith clashed with much of what she'd learned about the order of things, politics, competition, gossip, success. She rode across to Gilson near the pier, laid down her bike, and removed her shoes to leap along the sand, splash through the water, and then plop down to inhale the lake. Like lightning, her consciousness had shifted. She'd always believed that if she found answers to her deepest questions about life, it'd be a simple matter of adjusting her behavior. But although this new dimension she discovered challenged her deepest notions, she wore the same clothes and had the same tastes. Friends and family seemed to see her as the same person with some new trait they didn't like, brushing away her new notions. Come on, let's get high was like a taunt, since now she avoided intoxicants. Not that things she'd grown up believing were all bad, but she wore a new perspective that set her apart. Her old friends judged her by the old rules, charged her with criticizing them, and stopped calling. She'd felt alienated before her conversion, but now felt like an outsider even. No one seemed to detect the disruption she felt. She didn't know how to click her new life onto the old one, how to merge the two different directions of her internal world. So Debbie said you had another one you wanted to read? Yes. There are a couple things in my travel. I mentioned I, I lived in Italy and I married an Italian. Actually, at a certain point we came to the States. He was writing a dissertation about the Native Americans and we traveled out West. Some of these pictures are in my gallery on my webpage. My husband wrote a dissertation about the Native Americans, and I translated a lot of books for him. He didn't speak English as well as I spoke Italian. Okay, there's two ideas in the passage. One is anachronistic, because I didn't know this at the time I lived in Italy. And that is the last line talking about the water line. The water line is a Native American idea about how we're all born in water and women are the water carriers. So the water line is passed from mother to daughter. And Sylvie in the book and me in my life, I'm all curious about how women's knowledge gets transferred, especially since women were so often excluded from history. When I was living in Italy in a small town called Nogare in Northern Italy, it was all widows, and I did include this because it's such a fascinating thought that this was a, a little town, cobblestone streets, old 16th century buildings, all widows because the men had died in a mine crash during World War II. I learned all about pregnancy. I knew nothing. I got pregnant. I had a baby in Italy, knew nothing about it. I was completely clueless. My mother... She said, oh, I, I wouldn't be any help at all. She was medicated when she gave birth. The baby was taken away from her, you know. That's what, what they did in the 50s. But these women, they were of the earth, 
close to life. Sylvia yearned for that. I yearned for that. I wanted to know about the earth. Later on, we built with our own hands, we built a log cabin and lived in it. I wanted to live on the land. I wanted to have that experience and feel that I could go anywhere in the earth. So that's another thread in my book is this connection with nature, the connection with life on that level too, which I'm showing in this passage that these women are connected in that way. That's something that Sylvia yearns for. All right. So this is in Italy. Voices drifting through air and footsteps clapping on cobblestones awakened her. She'd grown so heavy that from lying on her back, she had to shift her belly to the bedside, let her legs roll off, push herself up and slide her feet into slippers, a patient old couple waiting on the floor. Though she preferred walking barefoot, the women's rules forbade it. She sat dizzily, then stood up and shuffled into the kitchen, leaning backward for balance, and opened the tap to fill the tea kettle, careful not to splash her hands, as Griselda had instructed. Books were piled on a chair, draped over with clothes, a crumb-covered plate burrowed under an Olivetti typewriter. Olga had told her to lie down when her back hurt. Just seeing the mess pained her. While rinsing the terracotta pitcher, she recoiled at the ripe film of yesterday's milk and didn't notice Olga, face scrubbed to a chapped rosiness, radiant as she stood with one hand clutching the wire handle of a metal pail half filled with fresh milk. When Sylvie looked up, Olga was stepping back to knock on the open door from outside. I came earlier, but no one answered, she said. Your milk's been in the barn all morning. I covered it, but the flies... Before her heaviness and sleepiness increased, Sylvie would visit the barn early and once saw Victoria stick her finger in the milk and flick away three flies. Olga insisted she drink lots of milk, but sometimes thinking of it turned her stomach. Thanks so much. You sleep late, eh? But just you wait. When that baby comes, Olga's self-assurance was humbling. She'd spent her life in this little village, yet nothing daunted her, whereas dust, laundry, and dishes overwhelmed Sylvie, the world traveler. In her eighth month, the women cleaned the house while she stood awkwardly sponging the kitchen table, watching them barrel pass, stooping, crawling, lifting furniture, scouring walls and floors. The next morning, Sylvie went to return Olga's milk pail, she breathed in the scent of tilled earth arising from the hot fields as she walked along the cobblestones that lay like rows of solid bubbles, even after centuries of hooves and feet had worked to flatten them. Coming through a dark passageway, she entered the bright piazza and tripped on a cobblestone's hump back, and the pail flew from her outstretched hands as she stumbled. Olga and Griselda were perched on a ledge, the tiny vines of their calico aprons extending up from the stones. Relieved she didn't land on her belly, they heaved a loud sigh, as from a single breast, then laughed. We always fell down too, said Griselda. When I was pregnant, I fell down a whole flight of stairs, said Olga. Maybe by the time I'm used to all this weight, the baby will be born, Sylvie said, leaning sideways to pick up the pail. Yes, and you'll be carrying the little one in your arms instead, said Olga. 
Sylvie was about to sit when Griselda gasped so loudly that Sylvie jumped up, expecting to find a snake slithering behind her. No, you might lose the baby if you sit on that cold stone. Sylvie's heart pounded. I could have lost it from fright just now. Olga folded up her sweater to make a cushion for her. Just beware the extreme, said Griselda, hot and cold. Sylvie wanted to rebel against all these restrictions, but without facts to counter them, didn't dare. Besides, she admired Griselda and Olga. They'd never sit in Café Miraggio and discuss whether the economy balanced on women's backs. But who in Café Miraggio could do what they did? Bring forth life out of soil, prune grapevines and tie their branches to trellises, gather wood into bundles and sling them over their shoulders, scramble up the hill and out of sight on spring days when porcini were growing in their secret places, move quick and sure like rabbits starting home. When Sylvie was eight, Mom handed her a seed packet bearing pictures of bright blue morning glories, suggesting she plant them by the arbor. Smiling, Mom said, read the instructions. Sylvie took the seeds outside, poked holes in the soil with her finger and dropped them in, not knowing she'd planted them too deep, and quietly despaired when they never surfaced. She never mentioned it, and Mom forgot about it. And when she planted seeds in the garden Olga gave her, she regarded the seedlings with awe as if she'd performed a miracle. But no, it's the spirit of life pushing through the earth as the spirit of life was in her belly. Where mom struggled underneath male definitions, these women growing out of their village stone knew how their femaleness fit not just on the planet, but in society. It was as if they included her in their waterline. I went to your website, Deb, DebraClarkVance.com, and you have a wonderful photography gallery of pictures from all over the world. Some photos are quite old and others are more recent. Has photography always been an important part of your life? It's interesting you ask that. My mother, she had her own photo lab in the basement, and both of my brothers, and I think my sister too. So no, it wasn't. I wish I had learned. My son became a professional photographer for a while until the newspapers all went out of business. So um, why do you have that gallery then on your on your site? Some of those places are part of the story. Uh, those are places that I've been to. Not all of them are included in the story, but some of them, or many of them are. Mm-hmm. So it depicts the history of you. Yeah. It's a self-portrait in a way. Deb, now that Sylvia Denied is published, any new project on the horizon? I started something. The working title is called My Husband Speaks to Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and it's completely different. But it's sort of an exploration in mentality. And I say that because some of that is also in Sylvia Denied. Sort of there's an exploration of different ways of thinking. Let's put it that way. It's something that intrigues me a lot. I worked for 10 years. I had a part-time job at a, a day treatment program center for adults with emotional and mental illnesses who had alternative ways of seeing the world. So I wanted to explore that, Tom. Well, Deb, thank you so much for taking this time to tell us your story and to describe for us Sylvie Denied, and I wish you the best of luck in the success of the publication. Thank you so much, and thanks again for having me.
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deborah Vance, author of the novel Sylvie Denied. Deborah has a website you can visit, DebraClarkVance.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
must die Abandoned night The everlasting Must die A beauty that must die And set not your affections On this Say 
Free! 